Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. More people are beginning to wake up to the realization that we live in a universe that's way more intelligent than we are. That it's so much smarter than us, in fact, that we can barely comprehend what it's saying when it speaks to us. Only now, as our planet suffers the spasms of anguish that humanity is inflicting upon it, are we starting to notice those messages. But recognizing them requires a shift in orientation, away from our familiar sense of ourselves, to being open to the possibility that us humans have been getting a lot of things wrong throughout history, and that we don't have much time left to course-correct. The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If what we're doing here resonates for you, please remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Share this episode with new acquaintances at the Animal Sanctuary. Post about it on social media and leave a rating on iTunes. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net for feedback. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. We live in a culture that equates intelligence with words. Trees can't speak, so they mustn't be smart. The same goes for so-called dumb animals. That rationale is what gives us license to pen up all those cows, pigs, and chickens in factory farms and treat them as if they have no sentience. Somehow, humanity is capable of treating people with the same kind of disconnected cruelty, especially if the other looks somewhat different or follows unfamiliar customs. Homo sapiens are produced with a design flaw that gives us the false impression that each of us is radically independent from the context and flow in which we find ourselves. The gods delivered to me and my tribe a buffet of moving objects which I can consume for nutrition in a hostile landscape that is surrounded by savages. That archaic worldview remains as the emotional substrate underlying the main tenets of our civilization, and it is driving us to ecological collapse. That's why it's important for us to bring a new kind of attentiveness to the subtle articulations of nature in the wide range of ways that they manifest. Trees send signals through their roots, connecting with other trees through networks of fungi, Whales communicate with intricate sound patterns, using a code we have yet to crack. The heavy-handed, wonky tools of our science are only beginning to become sensitive enough to pick up the subtle, sophisticated expressions of our natural environment. The shamans of the Amazon, who have the benefit of wisdom traditions that date back centuries, if not millennia, are far more in touch with these gentle but powerful currents than most PhDs. We have much to learn from them once we're ready to pay attention. We can also learn a lot from artists who put their connection 
to the natural world at the center of their practice. My guest today, David Rothenberg, is one such musician. David is a clarinetist famous for his live performance collaborations, not only with other brilliant musicians, but also with birds, insects, and whales. Few people have gone as deep into considering the meaning of animal sounds, or their musicality, as David. He is now releasing his latest endeavor, Nightingales in Berlin, which includes a music recording, a book, and a film. As we discuss on the show, the Nightingale's song has its own personality, volition, and temperament. They prove to be provocative collaborators, as you'll hear towards the end of the program when we play a piece from David's new album. It's wonderful stuff. David Rothenberg has written and performed on the relationship between humanity and nature for years. He is the author of Why Birds Sing on Making Music with Birds, which was turned into a documentary by the BBC. His next book, Thousand Mile Song, about making music with whales, became a film for French television. His book on insects in music, Bug Music, has been covered by The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, on PBS NewsHour, and on Radiolab. As a composer and jazz clarinetist, David has 16 CDs out under his own name, including a record on ECM with Marilyn Crispell called One Dark Night, I Left My Silent House. And he is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. What is it about music that resonates for all of us animals, Homo sapiens included? No one doubts the intelligence behind the music of Beethoven, Duke Ellington, or the Beatles. What David recognizes is the resonant intelligence at play in all of the musical articulations of nature. Once we start to hear that genius for what it is, our ears change and our hearts open. We find ourselves at play in the symphony of sounds that are generated by a living universe. A universe in which we improvise compositions as only one instrument among many. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil 
can last for four hours or more. But the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. Music is like the world of sounds, all assembled, all put together, all organized by, by people, by animals, by nature itself, by the universe. Like sound is, is out there and it flows and, and, it, and it crackles and there are melodies and there are rhythms and you can find it so many places. You hear it in your head before you hear it outside? Does that have to be the ears? Uh, I hear music in my head. I don't always trust what I hear in my head, but I do hear music Why wouldn't you trust it? Because it's in my head instead of in the world. It's just going on out there. I hear the first song I ever composed when I was a little kid, you know, like age seven with delusions of grandeur. Like, <laughs> I, I remember the whole story and the melody, which was going to be some giant opera or something. Like, like a direction I never really pursued as a, as a little kid imagining things. Yeah. Right. When did music start to really call you? Oh, let's see. Like, I think like in school, they made you play the recorder. Mm-hmm. And then I moved from there to clarinet and then the orchestra. And at the same time, I liked wandering out outside a lot. And hearing stuff. Like n- hearing nature and wandering in nature. But it, it wasn't until I think I was in high school that I thought music and nature might have something to do with one another. Well, what do they have to do with each other? They, out of nature comes all of humanity and music is part of that. And that fascinating thing is that you can find so much music in in nature before that's older than humanity that it's been around for millions of years like it's something in the natural world that evolved long before human beings evolved so as such it's incredibly um, serious and deep in our past and it's still you know i see you hear a bird sing or an insect and know these animals have been around for millions of years longer than we have and they're singing these same or related kinds of songs and and we can still hear them so that stuff is really old like it is primordial. It's, it's, it's larger and older than we are. So if we wanted to find the most classical music, the oldest music we know, it's much older than human beings. And people generally don't take this, this music so seriously. They, they don't think much about it, but it, it, you should. And once you start to think, think about it, you hear a lot more music out in nature. You value it a lot more if you believe this story we're pushing towards here. And so you would take your clarinet out into the woods and play with the birds or play with insects or get on a boat and go play with whales. 
This is true. And I think it was in, in high schools when I first started doing this. Oh, really? And it had to do with two things. And on one hand, I did hear about this jazz musician, Paul Winter, who was famous for doing this. I believe I read about him first in the New York Times. Before you heard the Paul Before Winter Before I heard album. him. I, he lived in Connecticut. I lived in Connecticut. I knew he lived pretty close. And like, oh, he made an album with birds and whales and wolves. This sounded so cool. So I went out and bought it. And you know, then I heard like, this is cool. Now, when he made that album, was that... I always had the impression like he would make the music with a recording. Like he had taped the whale sounds or he had taped the bird sounds and he would weave those in to the jazz compositions that he had done. You know, God, I got to say, I probably haven't heard that stuff since college. You're right that most of his work is with recordings of these animals. And yet part of his preparation for that was going out and doing it. At least he suggested you could go out and do it. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to go out and do it. And then uh, I think I was 17, I, I went on a, to a summer Earthwatch expedition studying birds in California. And one day we'd go trap birds in this net, small little warblers and things, and we'd put bands on them. And then we would let them loose. And the other day you'd, you'd track them on the other side of the valley. Where is this bird going? And I'd do these maps. Where's the bird flying around? So actually like, like uh, it was like human GPS tracking of birds, you know, for some sort of purpose, see how they use the environment. We were collecting data. And so um, there were a lot of funny aspects to this work. The most fun was that you, you really got so connected to the landscape when someone told you like follow the birds around they have bands so you can identify them and and then when i was done with the work i would sit and take out an instrument and play along with them what was listening it? do you remember the first time you did that yeah i, I have yeah well, one day i had like a little recorder type flute and i took it out under the tree after i'd been um you know tra tracking birds all day one point i was tracking this goshawk it's kind of hawk where's the hawk going and drawing this map i'm not sure it was the same day but it might have been and I had lost track of him. I'm sitting there looking at, at the map and I hear a rustle above me and the bird is looking down at my uh, map of his whereabouts. <laughs> and I kind of laughed and took out this little flute and started playing and listening. And, and, and it was, you know, it seemed like a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. Although it was not until many years later I started thinking you could take this more seriously. And that had to do with another one of these like mentor figures like Paul Winter became for me when I got to know him. Oh, you got to know years. Paul Winter. Yeah, of course. Because I, I, I always liked seeking people out that interested me. For those who don't know, mm -hmm. who is Paul Winter? Paul Winter is an American jazz musician who's known for his work on environmental causes and work together with the natural world. And he started out in the early 60s. He was a young, like, um, like Dave Brubeck type figure. He was a white jazz musician who got very popular and he got a grant from the State Department to go to Brazil and he learned some Brazilian music and he was making these popular jazz kind of fusion-y albums and then at some point he got interested in doing something more than music like we've got to help we've got to do something more and he created this village just called The Village in Connecticut. Let's all get together, have a, have a life music community, pay attention to the natural world. And, and they just hung out there and recorded and he got some great musicians together like Ralph Towner, guitarist, bassist Glenn Moore, oboist Paul McCandless. And, and, and on his first album of The Winter Consort, which was called Icarus, actually that's maybe the second album they made. Fame, somehow he got George Martin to produce it. From the Beatles. The famous producer, yeah. And George Martin famously said over the years, that's the best album I ever worked on. And it's what? a beautiful album. It's Whoa. gone into outer space on the Voyager expedition. Everyone Better loves Icarus. Better than the White Album? I can't well, believe Well, you know, this is just in the lore. Uh -huh. And I don't know. 
you know, pretty good story. But anyway, so Paul Winter brought all these interesting musicians in between classical music and jazz and world music before there was anything called world music. And because they were living out among these the natural world and these sounds, it was like a sort of commune-like situation, upstate Connecticut. It became, uh, it kind of moved towards... Um, you know, actually paying attention to these natural sounds. And in this record he made a few years later called Common Ground, he really put the sounds of whales, wolves, eagles. I think whales, wolves, and eagles are famously on that record and said, I'm putting the sounds of nature in this. And after that, he, he became famous for doing many environmentally connected projects as he continues to do up until this day, still doing it. So then you met him. How did you meet him? I met him because I was in Connecticut. He was in Connecticut. He was playing at the, uh, the what was then called the Hudson River Revival. It's now the Clearwater Festival. This is what Pete Seeger yeah, founded. Pete Seeger started this. Paul Winter was playing there. And, and I, went, I went to play with my friends. We took out some instruments and we were just playing like teenagers. You know, I think with a little boom box with some nature sounds, just sitting up there playing. And then I, someone, and I opened my eyes and someone was listening and it was the singer, Susan Osborne, who was in Paul Winter's band. You must come meet Paul. And so I went over and talked to him. And oh, sweet. Dave Amram was also there. I remember talking to him. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's, you know, they're still doing it. Like, you know, people keep going. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got to meet him. And, and then his cellist was also teaching at the Westport School of Music where I was growing up, Eugene Friesen. Both of us got thrown out of that school around the same time. Congratulations. Yeah, because we were, we were a little unorthodox and we, we like believed in improvisation, things like that. And they didn't want that there. Somehow, yeah. And then I, I, we, I got to know Gene and pl- recorded and played with him. And, and so I, I thought maybe I would join the Paul Winter Consort, but all these musicians said, you don't want to do that. Do it your own way. Create your own consort. Go your own direction, which is kind of, I guess, what I did. So what pulled you then to think more seriously about a collaboration with the natural kingdom of music makers? I think it was years later after doing other things. I went to college, I kind of wanted to do this unusual, hard to describe kind of music. I kind of was worried about the, the earth, wanting to save the earth, environmental issues. So I was pulled these things. I thought I would go to college and study science. But then I, I kind of got more interested in music and culture and made up my own major, which is in between music and anthropology and literature. And all of my professors were the kind of people who became professors in the 1960s when a lot of strange people became professors because, you know, it was an interesting time. And they always said, do it your own way. Forget the traditions. Make up your own path. They were very much like follow your own bliss, your own journey. When was the moment that you came back birds. It was years later when I, I heard about another person of this generation, R. Murray Schaefer, the Canadian composer, author of the amazing book, The Tuning of the World, about listening to the environment. It's been reprinted recently under a different name, The Soundscape. He's the, the founder of Soundscape Studies, paying attention to the sounds of the world as, as a kind of environmental and cultural and aesthetic concern. Sort of like a, a different thing than what say someone like John Cage might have been talking about. Yeah, John Cage was like a, a Zen master of sound, like listen to it all. It's beautiful. Pay attention to the world. You will hear a musical composition everywhere. He wasn't passing judgment. He said, free yourself from your likes and dislikes. And take you out of this whole notion of music has to be, happen in a concert hall. Right. It's got to happen in a kind of, you know, where the musician is practicing their Mozart and hitting every note just perfectly, mm-hmm. that there's a whole way of orienting your ear mm-hmm towards sound so that you 
essentially, you know, open your own relationship to what's happening around you. And you can take that in as information that has an aesthetic aspect to it. Exactly. And John Cage also was a huge influence first from his book, Silence, one of the best books ever about creativity and culture and what to do with one's life. Everyone should read it because he tells you like, don't trust anyone who tells you you have to just do one thing. He describes his history like, uh, I thought I'd be an architect, but I went to this famous teacher. He said, you must devote yourself totally to architecture. I said, I couldn't do that. I went to see Schoenberg. He said, you must have an innate feeling for harmony to be a composer. Like, I didn't have that. One by one, everyone said, you got to focus on what I think is important or you'll never get ahead in life. And he said, no, I want everything. I want it all. He was very much an influence. If you're interested in learning from these, the masters, go, go seek them out. And usually, sometimes it's difficult, but they probably will talk to you eventually. The really good guys yeah. tend to be available. Yeah, sometimes once, they'll say, you're not ready yet. Prove it to me, but the best ones will kind of welcome you in. The best ones yeah. always do. John Cage used to spend a lot of time at the St. Mark's Church events, mm-hmm. poetry project events back in the 80s when I was a youngin. And he was the sweetest guy. He was just amazingly there. And like you could shake his hand and check in with him and he'd be in group conversations out in the foyer. And, you know, I I got a lot of vibe from John Cage back in those days. Yeah, I think, he, you know, he he was just open towards people. I think that's the best way to be. And so another guy like that, in his own way, is R. Murray Schaefer. He's in his mid-80s now. He's a Canadian composer. He found it. He wrote this book. He wrote books about Ezra Pound and music. He wrote huge amounts of stuff. And then he started this whole career of doing music his own way. I mean, he was teaching in Vancouver. He had all these students. Then he retreated to this little town, Indian River, Ontario, a few hours north of Toronto, doing it all himself, publishes his books, putting out his scores, tra- you know, setting up these compositions that were like worlds in themselves, the most extreme, called The Wolf Project. It's a 10-year composition. You've got to spend a few weeks every summer just, just doing it. I think maybe it's been completed. The 10 years are done, but it, it's like a way of life. You know, you know and so he, he really set up the idea, let's perform concert works on a wilderness lake wow. with loons and trombonists on canoes and, you know, singers, opera singers coming across the lake, singing, dressed up in these costumes. Like he set up these pageants. And for his 60th birthday, there was a big conference in Banff, Alberta. And that was probably 1993. And there I met a whole bunch of people from all over the world who was working with music and nature. I realized this is a thing. There are people who care about this. It's like a movement. Yeah, and so then I, I said I I decided I would chronicle that movement, and I wrote a book, edited a book called "The Book of Music and Nature," putting different people together. It, it may be the only anthology, well, not anymore. It's one of the few anthologies of different people writing on this topic, one of the first. And so that sort of set this forth as a movement. And from there, I started doing my own projects, like a book about music and birds, and about whales, and about bugs, and each of them are these kind of personal journeys trying to make music together with these different kinds of creatures, as well as reading and everything that had been written before on this, listening to every possible way people had previously tried to musically deal with these creatures and kind of combine the the investigative side and the experiential side. One of the beautiful things about those recordings that you've done in collaboration with animals is how you play something and then they come back they respond to you there's a dialogue that happens which i'm wondering when was the first time you noticed that like you would play something in a clarinet and you noticed like oh that bird is picking it up or reflecting or coming back to me with a, with a vibe that's 
related to mine. Well, one example of that came out of uh, this Music and Nature project and this Banff conference where I met this uh, flutist and art professor, Michael Pestel, who uh, was at the time teaching at Chatham College in Pittsburgh. And in Pittsburgh is an institution called the National Aviary of the United States. Who knew there was such a thing? But it's there in Pittsburgh, full of interesting birds. And he said he would often go play with these crazy tropical birds and, and perform with them in the aviary. You must come with me and do that. So I think until that time, I hadn't done so much live stuff with animals. And so he invited me there. We went to the aviary. And I, you know, most of the birds will ignore you, but one particular bird, the white-crested laughing thrush, really paid attention. And there's a video of this first time from the year 2000, I think. It's what's on YouTube under the name Wild Bird Jazz, where I'm playing along with this laughing thrush. The very moment I realized that, oh, this could be interesting. And so that's kind of where I started to do it again. And then I said, okay, yes, this will be the beginning of this book, Why Birds Sing. And then Michael Pestel and I, we're going to go to Australia and play with the superb lyre bird, L-Y-R-E, the greatest singing bird in the world. We'll go on this journey. And so we did that. You know, we'll make, we made it happen. And, and, you know, this is the kind of trajectory from Pittsburgh to um, the forests of Australia and everything in between. And you found the birds. birds. Yeah, you yeah, we know where bird. these birds are. You know, people can help us. Ah, Olivier yeah. Messiaen, the French composer, went out to hear the lyre bird and transcribe his notes out there in the field. And, and this man named Sid Curtis took him out there. So I wrote to Sid Curtis, who's also still around. He took Messian out there in the 70s. He took us out in, in 2004. And I, I believe he's still around. And uh, maybe still people, taking people out to find these lyre birds. And so we had this direct lineage, this history. You can find these people and, and see what they have to say. When you start to go deeper in that connection, right, with the animals, mm -hmm. with the birds, do you feel like you, you, that there's a different aspect of yourself playing than when you play with people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the amazing thing about music is we know that it's so important to us, but we have no idea what it really means. If, you know, if it doesn't have any words telling us what it means, we don't know what it's about. What, what's the real meaning of these sounds put together? They touch us emotionally, they follow their rules, their order, but we can't really say what it means. And it's easy enough for humans to get together and play with, um, <laughs> play with musicians who don't speak our same language make music together with someone you can't talk to. So why not try it with an individual from another species? You know, most human languages call these bird sounds songs. We recognize there's something musical in them all over the world throughout history. So let's just say, let's play some music with these musicians with, with whom we can't talk to and then hear what happens. And so that's what it's like. And it's hard to know what it is. What the, it's hard to know and say, oh, this bird is responding to me. Maybe he is, maybe not, but we're making some kind of music together that one species could not make alone. It's there, you know. You might say, they're just talking past each other. Nobody understands anybody, but, you know, we don't even understand what music means even when we talk about it. But you sense yeah. a kind of intelligence. Oh, the, no doubt there's intelligence. Whether that intelligence is interested in what I'm doing may be less clear, but I would not doubt any, the intelligence of all these animals that, and their interesting lives that they have. I mean, nature, there's so much intelligence. I mean, you know, there's, we're now becoming more and more adept at tracking and understanding how plants respond mm -hmm. to the environment and respond to what's happening and communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. We're noticing more and more about, you know, different ways that, that animals do communicate subtle information to one another way beyond just like, you know, mating rituals mm -hmm. or, you know, where is the food? Mm -hmm. There's a deepening appreciation of the complexity 
of the kind of communication that we can track through hearing and through auditory means, but then also subtle things, energetic communications between plants and plants. Mm -hmm. Your work brings you into that flow. Yeah, that's what interests me. Like, like uh, you spend time, so much time listening to these birds, and you know, you, you get much more connected and interested in what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're singing. And so, um, you know, in this, it's now many years I've gone every spring to play music with nightingales in Berlin. And so I hear them in a very different way than when I started. How did that progress for you? Uh, I mean, it started when the first time I heard a nightingale was in Helsinki in, in 1998 when I was teaching it there for one semester on a Fulbright. I just, you know, it's light all the time in, 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 in like May and June, never gets dark. You're just up all the time. People are kind of crazy. I remember walking home. It was like 3 a.m. I just heard this crazy bird singing in a tree. Like, what is that? So I said, oh, well, you don't know? It's a nightingale in Finnish, Safakeli. Like, what? That's hmm. what a nightingale sounds like? I mean, I read about them in Shakespeare and in, in Keats and all this poetry. I thought they would be singing long, complex melodies. And I said, well, no. They sound much more like a DJ scratching records with weird rhythms and noises. It's like electronic music. Like, oh, you're right. And so then I, I had in the back of my mind, I got to do something with this, these nightingales someday. And then it was in 2000... 12 or so, I was thinking like, uh, I've, I'm going to get a year off from teaching soon, a sabbatical. I'm going to go to Berlin, live there for a year. A lot of good reasons to live in Berlin for a year. And one thing I'm going to do is, is play music with these nightingales because I'd heard, I'd read some accounts of going out to hear nightingales in Berlin parks in spring as a fun thing to do because like, they're full of weird people in the middle of the night. These birds are singing. No one's really paying attention. and you, It's just an interesting activity. So I said, okay, we're going to do this. And that's how it began. And then, then it became, then I, originally I didn't think I'd write a book about it. I just kept doing it. And then I did think we should make a film about this. And so then I started working on this film and the book was going to be about larger things, like just the idea of sound, sound effects and things. And then it, it sort of got focused on these nightingales. I said, can I have a whole book on this? Yeah, why not? And then I started getting more and more different people involved and the social aspect of it became very important and the mixing of human cultures to get like- In what way? I wanted to get musicians from all over the world because Berlin is full of interesting musicians. It's full of refugees. I wanted to find Syrian oud players, you know, Iranian jazz singers and people from different places and all come together and make them go play with these birds. You bring them out to the park. Yeah, let's go out in the middle of the night. You, you know, in the middle of the night. Never, yeah, Why no, the middle of the night? Because that's when they sing. They're, they're not called nightingales for no reason. They sing at night. Really? What time? they start? Uh, well, it depends on the bird. And they come back to the same tree every year, so you get to know these birds. Really? And so, but the fact, the fact is in Berlin, from late April to early May, it's best to, to assume you can start at 11, 11.30, or midnight is going to be really good if you convince people to stay up and do this. Oh, it's so like it's a late show. Yeah. And, and sometimes they'll, the second they'll do set. earlier. Sometimes around 10, you can get something out of them, but not reliably. And people get impatient. They don't want to wait. Even in Berlin, this nightlife town, they don't want to actually stay up that late. You know, or at least they want to go clubbing. They don't want to be outside. And then the how humans, long does it go? They're going to last. They're going to keep going for hours. The humans will get bored after an hour or two. The nightingale wins. If he's competing with us, he's going to have no sign of faltering in energy. They keep going. So how do you feel like they keep 
that they're connecting and competing? Like, do you get a well, sense I, of Well, I've read what engaging? scientists have said. I, I get a sense that they're, they're, they're singing with each other, they're having fun, they're making music. But scientifically, they would say that there's three ways they respond. When they're first establishing their territories, they compete with each other. They sing at the same time. Like, I'm here. No, I'm here. I'm here. No, I'm here. So you hear like, boop, 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 and they come at each other. And then once they've established their territory, then the main focus is, is a female going to show any interest in this? So one will go, boo, boo, and he waits. And the other one goes, boo. But he's a certain distance away. The territories are clear. They're kind of going back and forth, having fun. And then, uh, you know, you as a human go in there, do they feel like you're conflicting with them? Or is this just kind of another challenge or it's just kind of fun? But the fact is they always leave space. So that's why a nightingale is a good bird to play along with. He's going to sing for a moment and stop. They don't seem so bothered. They, they, they know hundreds of phrases. They kind of choose from among those phrases when they sing with you. And, and, and then scientists say certain things. And all these scientists, by the way, are in Berlin. It's the center of nightingale science. They study, you know, the same birds using different methods. It's not a natural thing for a scientist to regard the animals that they study as being capable of an artistic aesthetic expression. Yeah, not for most scientists. But when they think of why they're studying these things, they also feel the beauty and are touched by these same things. They're just afraid to talk about it. How do you draw it out of them? Oh, just by, let's come out and play some music. Listen to this. What do you think? And when they get beyond the sense like you're ruining our subjects, you're messing with our data, then people get really touched by the whole thing. I, I, I chastised the scientists of birdsong in my earlier book, Why Birds Sing. I said, you don't ask the hardest questions like, why is this, why do we find this song beautiful? Or why, do, why does, okay, all these birds are trying to establish territories and find mates. A chickadee can do that by going, do, 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 do. Why does a mockingbird need to sing for hours, assembling a song out of the sounds of hundreds of other birds? Why does a catbird improvise this weird dissonant thing for on and on and on and on for the same function as these other birds? Is there something better or worse about this? Why is there this difference? We know the function is the same. If you want to talk about the difference, you have to get into the aesthetics. And most of them didn't want to talk about this until I think I helped to convince a few, like, well, let's try it out. Let's try and understand what the nightingales are doing. And so we've been working on this. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a scientist. Like I don't use this quantifiable method of knowledge, but I, I can work together with them to try and figure out what, what can be measured, what can't be measured. Yeah, well, I would imagine that, that the, the, the conventional response would be, well, they do that because of natural selection. Well, for Darwin, this is a big problem. He knew that there was aesthetics in nature, and he wrote in The Descent of Man, he said, birds have a natural aesthetic sense. That's why they've evolved all these beautiful feathers and all these beautiful songs. There's two whole chapters on birds in The Descent of Man. He says, look, in The Origin of Species, I talked about natural selection, survival of the fittest. What is so fit about spending so much energy singing all night? That's a weird thing that evolved. This is a different process called sexual selection that's just kind of evolved in a way, for the hell of it, because the females turned out they just liked it. It didn't have to go this way. A bird doesn't have to sing that much. You know, a humpback whale doesn't have to sing for 24 hours. Other whales don't make any sound, most of them. So <laughs> this is this part of evolution, the possibility for aesthetic creation in excess. And that's something I wrote about in an, another earlier book, Survival of the Beautiful. I, I was obsessed by this. And, you know, the majority of biology... You could say they are more Darwinian than Darwin. The Darwinians say everything must have a purpose and a function and be necessary somehow in evolution. But Darwin would never have said that. 
he was interested in this beauty. It was troubling him. He even said, like, the peacock's tail, that really makes me sick. I can't explain it. <laughs> but he was interested in it. And now there's a kind of minority movement in biology to bring back the study of the evolution of beauty in its own sake, the work of someone like Richard Prum and uh, Michael Ryan, these biologists who are studying sexual selection more on its own, not so much as a subset of natural selection, but as something interesting in its own right. Yeah, I mean, you want to find a place for love in nature. Exactly, yeah. And that it just vibrates mm -hmm. in a certain way with a clarity and a connection that is not you know, all about utility. It's totally not all about utility. And if you wound back evolution a few million years and started again, you'd get completely different animals, all kinds of weird things. This is not inevitable what's happened by any means. And so that's kind of amazing. What has happened must be celebrated, investigated, enjoyed. And much of the specifics of natural beauty are just not known to us. Like nobody bothers to pay attention. And, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday, like no, no one has anything to say on the song of the robin the most common singing bird early in the morning. Nobody's figured it out. Nobody is like... Uh, <laughs> well, what, what are the questions you would ask in order to understand well, the robin? What are they actually doing? Are they all different from each other? Are they singing the same things? What determines one song to go in a different in a way? Let's take this one bird. How does he start singing early in the season and how does it develop over the, over the months? Does he get better or worse? Does he sing more at a certain period? And, and as a musician, I'm particularly interested in what's the structure of what the robin is doing, what, what's actually going on. The same for all these other birds. And the nightingale, because of the clarity, it's easier to figure out. Mockingbirds interest me, interest me a lot. People think they copy the sounds of other birds. What they're really doing is composing out of the material of the songs of other birds, following very precise rules that are pretty easy to articulate if anyone would sit down and want to articulate those rules. I'm trying to do a project on that in a collaboration with scientists to say, this is what the mockingbird does, this is what he doesn't do. So like a mockingbird yeah. essentially is doing a remix. It's a total remix. They're following more, you know, very specific rules, certain kinds of things he does, certain kinds of things he doesn't do. So there's a mockingbird aesthetic no one's bothered to kind of established. There's one biologist I kind of unearthed searching on the internet, Professor uh, Dave Gammon at Elon University in North Carolina. This guy hears things in mockingbirds no one else hears. He's like a connoisseur of their song, but he doesn't realize it. He thinks he's just analyzing data. But I pointed out, no, you're, you're, you're a connoisseur. You hear stuff no one else hears. That's really interesting. Sit down with you and listen to a mockingbird. You hear some really interesting stuff. So we're trying to um, work together on this. But really what I want to do is go out and record him listening to a mockingbird and talking about what he hears. Similar to my friend Sid Curtis in Australia, what he heard in a lyrebird song no one else could hear because he spent 40 years listening to them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What kind of structures get discovered? Like when you start to go into the bird song and start to see what's underlying 
the way that they work with sound? Are there things that were surprised you? Yeah, well, there's, there's scientifically, there's a, a problem with this Nightingale study that these uh, Christina Roske and Ofer Chernikovsky at uh, Hunter College and, and an institution in, in Frankfurt that actually is called the Max Planck Institute of Empirical Aesthetics. This exists. Empirical Aesthetics. Yeah, they have that. And so they, they analyze thousands of Nightingale songs and try to figure out, well, do some birds sing them all in the same order or some more creative and improvising? And they, they found differences from bird to bird, but it was so complicated. They didn't know what to make of it all. So much data, so much confusion, so much going on. But then she, you know, Tina recently, like two years ago, found one thing she can measure. Like when uh, part of the Nightingale song is this really fast rhythmic thing, they'll go like first slowly, boo, 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 and then goes, that end with some contrasting sound. But the it was kind of thought that they were really like a machine, like exactly presenting a rhythm. Like, you know, like like uh, you would imagine an automatic creature would do. Like, you know, crickets can go like perfectly in time. You know, like they, they can do that without thinking much because their brains are kind of attuned to this one task. So they figured the nightingales were doing something like that. But then when she analyzed the specifics of the rhythm, it had an unevenness to the rhythm. So it wasn't like a machine. It was more like what goes on when someone plays the piano, a fast rhythmic thing like like Schubert, the Earl King, famous piece, you know, this fast rhythmic thing. It has to, if you play it like a machine, we're not going to like it. You have to add this unevenness, which he called like a sense of swing, like they've got some musicality going on. And the Nightingales were doing the same thing as a human pianist playing a fast rhythm. They had to be uneven in an interesting way. She was able to measure this and show that it was the same percentage of being a little bit off. Therefore, she quantified the musicality of one aspect of the Nightingale song, which was a major revolution in this research because we couldn't figure out what to measure. Can you measure anything that explains why we think this is musical and cool? Like who wants to measure anything you might say, but you know, it's of interest. Science wants to show this is really there. It's not just human subjectivity. So that's what they managed to demonstrate. There is a musicality going on here. Why it's there, we don't quite know, but it's there. And the fact that it's there confirms what, you know, a musical listener hears, like why this sounds like music to us. There's a musicality, I would think, especially when you're a musician, you notice mm -hmm. it, not just in the songs of animals, or but then essentially in all of the rhythms of nature. Yeah, I mean, that's what John Cage might say. Mm. And then, but the, the fact, the idea of a, of a being doing something like with a real intention and making these sounds with beginning and middle and end in a complex structure. Like they're doing a lot of what we do when we're making music, putting sounds together and, and organizing them, but not like conveying specific information. I can play all these notes. Like, what am I trying to say? I can't explain it to you. Why'd you play that scale? What about this? What are you trying to say? Could you explain that to me in words? You cannot. The music has its meaning according to its, its rules along with its passion and its energy and its, its sort of value, whatever that might be, you know, and, and there's this aspect of music that it's very hard to explain when it works, what makes music good. It's very hard to say what that is. And yet we can often feel when it's there. And it seems like these birds are doing sort of the same thing. They also have it. And I'm constantly reading things and tr trying to explain the inexplicable in music. You know, one book I'm publishing in the fall, it's a dialogues between this student dialogues between the student and her teacher 
of this instrument in Norway, the Hardanger fiddle, which is like a violin that has resonating strings like a sitar. It's like a folk violin that's got this unique sound, this very bizarre music comes from the fjords of Norway and, and uh, you know, a lot of great musicians playing this instrument, but very few people talk about it and what makes the music great when it works. And so Knut Hamra is the master, Benedict Maurset is the student, and she talks about, uh, she's asking her um, teacher, like, you know, what is it when the music really works? What do you say? Well, the music is soaring, is one thing he says. Well, what makes the music soar? What happen- How can we explain when the music has soul, these different things? And it's all about the teacher and the student trying to come up with the words to explain these inexplicable parts of music. So I think in all of this work, when the words come in, we're trying to put words to something that the words can't quite make. You know, this is why people are always frustrated with writing about music. What do you even say? What do you talk about? And so it can be very difficult, but it seems worth it somehow. Interesting things come up, but we're never sure what the words are really explaining about the music. That's why in the end, we go out there, we play music with the birds. I want people to do it. I want people to listen to it. And I want, you know, we record a lot of it. We're making this film that's coming out in May and we've made hours and hours of recordings. And I just listen to it and try and find like, ah, something is happening here. I just got to play that for people, see what they think. This part maybe works for me and then people respond in different ways. There's a lot more attention in this consciousness scene to how vibration affects people. And there's a kind of movement around sound meditations, Mm -hmm. sound healing, where musical elements are brought into into a context, into a room, right? But they're not necessarily playing what you think of as normal music. They're creating, they're working with overtones. There's all, there's a whole long lineage of working with sounds with overtones to affect the body, to affect awareness, to open the mind, to get into a certain place. I'm wondering if you've seen any kind of correlation between that way of working with vibration and sound and what's happening with the animals. Well, what you're talking about certainly works. Like all these kinds of overtone sounds do have this surprising effect on us. One instrument that I have that I've never taken outside to play with birds is a contrabass clarinet, this huge, low clarinet. Mm. It's inst- I always wanted this instrument when I first heard him play it. I, I eventually convinced him to sell it to me. Because this particular instrument has this sound. You just play the low note. You, you just, it resonates throughout your whole body. Like you just play this one note all day. This is a good thing to do. And so... It has this amazing effect, and you know, because it's just resonating with you in these different ways. This super low sound, the overtones of a acoustic tone are what give it its quality. You know, so you can sense that, you can feel it, you can work with it. That's what makes an, an instrument sound at its best. And certainly, going out and making people pay attention to these unusual sounds over and over and over again, it gets to you in the same kind of way. It can affect you in surprising ways. And so even though it's not all overtones when you're dealing with rhythms and mm-hmm. quips and fast things of birds, it definitely has a healing quality and a kind of sound expanding sense. And at the end of doing it, you always feel like you're, you, you're part of something larger than yourself, some, something bigger that's happened. Like, like it always seems like this was worth doing. This, this took people somewhere. And, and this particular project involves a lot more people than a lot of my earlier projects where I, I kind of envision myself alone out there with the cicadas or the whales. It's me 
alone in this encounter. And this project, I'm thinking about a lot of it's bringing people together to listen and to witness and to make music and to, to do along with me or on their own. You know, it's like a group project. I want more people doing this. I don't want it them like overdoing it and kind of abusing the birds and ever doing it everywhere. But with respect, more and more people should be making music live with, with the sounds of the natural world in different ways. I mean, there's no nightingales in the new world, but you know, there's, they're only in Europe and in Asia, but we have all kinds of crazy birds and sounds happening here. Even in the city, you hear like familiar birds, like blue jays will make the strangest sounds at dawn really early. Like, what is that? They're just doing odd things. You, could, you can hear the sounds of nature that you don't expect in the, in the most surprising places. Talk a little bit about your experience with whales. Yeah, well, I, after I did this bird project, Why Birds Sing, I really said, next, I want to write a book about music and whales. What called you to the whale? The, the, the most interesting, the thing that started me on it is I knew that the songs of humpback whales had been discovered in the late 1950s, and before that, no one had heard them, because you needed these underwater microphones called hydrophones to hear this, and that when the Navy discovered it, they didn't want to tell anybody. Because like this is secret, we have to we, we could use this knowledge. They waited like ten years before they decided to let the world know. That was the end of the '60s, and then it became like a one of the great discoveries of the Aquarian age, the rise of consciousness. You know, the songs of whales, whale song. Now we think of it as some kind of new age cliche, but we forget that whale songs is what got people interested in saving whales. Until that moment, it was very hard for the, the, the those who knew that all the whales were being killed in the name of uh, oil and meat, that, you know, no one cared about them until they heard this song. And this was was what got Greenpeace started, which what got the movement to people interested in saving the whales. And so that was, um, you know, music got people closer to nature and got people to care about an aspect of the environment that we had previously been ignoring. And, you know, Roger Payne and Scott McVeigh were, were the two guys who who got this started. And, you know, Scott McVeigh is, is you know, <clears throat> actually I had met him at Paul Winter's wedding. <laughs> it was the late 80s or early 90s, and it, it rekindled my interest in this whole thing. Actually, I had first heard about him because his daughter, Cynthia McVeigh, I went to college with her and we were friends and we worked on this play together. And so I always knew her, her dad was like part of the songs of the humpback whale. And there he was, and I got to know him. And years later, it was one of the things that pushed me towards working on this project. So and how I, did, what did you do? You got on a boat? Like after this, yeah, I knew that. See, what happened is Scott, Scott and Roger, they had analyzed the song recorded by Frank Watlington off of Bermuda. He worked for the Navy. He had these recordings. He said, you figure out what's going on. And they printed out these sonograms, these kind of like printouts of sound, mapping frequency against time. And there were, these machines worked very laboriously in the 1960s. It could take like a, you know, an hour to print out a minute of sound or something. So they'd one after another after another. These days, your phone can make an instant sonogram if you want. Just have it running while we're talking here. And so then they saw the structure that was harder to hear because we have a hard time hearing complex alien structures. But when you print it out and you have an image that shows like 15 minutes in one picture, you sense like, oh, there's a pattern. And that was the beginning of their analysis. And that's when they realized this was like a song. There were patterns that repeated and they were organized and it was like a piece of music. And it was more like a piece of music than it was like language because these patterns were very, very repetitive and they switched to another pattern, to another pattern. And as language, it looked like it was all the same stuff over and over and over and over again. But human music looks the same way. We don't get bored by it. 
if someone's saying the same stuff over and over and over again, we get mad at them. We get bored. <laughs> yeah. So you had already been doing duets with birds mm -hmm. at that point. You decided you were going to get out there into the ocean. Yeah. And take a take a deliberate uh you know a, a team effort to hear and listen to and play with whale music i knew it would take more equipment need to have one of these hydrophones underwater microphone i would need an underwater speaker to broadcast my clarinet down into the water in the world of whales and we'd record the whole thing live i'm listening to this world and and, and producing this underwater duet and so I've done that many times now, and usually there's some technical difficulty. <laughs> but eventually, you know, it can, it does happen. It's amazing how many technical difficulties there are, although maybe not so amazing because you're out on a boat and, you know, there's so many. So when you first had that experience, the first time you did it, playing with a whale, was something happening in the relationship with the, with the whale song that surprised you, that took you into a place you didn't expect. Yeah, I felt like yeah, like we were making this music together and you know, whales actually change their songs from year to year, unlike a lot of these other animals. So it's not at all surprising the whale might hear a clarinet sound and start to change what he's doing. And although I haven't done any rigorous scientific analysis of this change, I felt like I've heard it. What I've definitely heard is a music made together between human and whale, which is what interests me the most. Rather than this analysis and science we've been talking about here, what interests me more is creating this beautiful encounter between one species and another. We kind of share this sense. And you know, this year I went back to Hawaii. I hadn't been in a few years. And we just played music with whales and listened to these recordings day after day after day. And it's the longest time I was with a group that just wanted to do this. And that we, you know, it was, it's very disorienting because usually everyone wants to swim with the whales or sail or do this. Or, and so there's so much diffuse energy. You were trying to make this music. You're kind of on the boat. You have to kind of deal with it. And so we went day after day after day and it was, it was really fun. It was kind of um, very special. What do you think the whales think of us when we're playing music with them? It's just, a, I think it's another weird sound in their environment, and they, they, perhaps more interesting sound than the usual noise of boats, sonar tests, and seismic exploration noises that threaten their, their underwater environment. They have so much to reckon with, with actual pollution, along with sound pollution and all the rest. That I would think that these kinds of sounds played by musicians that don't happen so often, they might be interested. But I, I wouldn't... Ha I wouldn't be sure of that. I, I don't feel like I need to know that. I don't feel the kind of sudden connection that people sometimes say when they're swimming with a whale. I looked into the eye of a whale. Everything was changed. I'm much more, remember, that I, I, I'm officially a philosopher, so I've been trained to be skeptical of everything. And so I tend to have to temper my, my learned sense of skepticism to what the real sense of beauty and encounter and turn off that questioning side to myself and just take it in and go, wow, this is just beautiful, whatever is happening here. And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's that hard to turn off the questioning side, but when I start to talk about it, you know, sometimes it's hard to temper that tendency to want to figure stuff out instead of just like saying, yeah, it was so beautiful and, and it was, uh, I keep, I should do it more. I should go back. I should do it all the time. I, I constantly think I should spend more time outside doing these things instead of talking about them and writing about them. Like I could spend, it's always a good idea to go out and play, play along with the sounds of nature and listen and, and uh, you know, 
every morning I get up, oh, am I going to get up at dawn? There's these cool sounds out there. Should I go outside and do this or just like sleep? And so, <laughs> and so I, I, I'm, I keep telling myself that. Yeah, but they have that experience where you're in that dialogue, sort of, you know, for so many of us, nature is this thing that sort of happens outside the car, right? Um, or like in a park mm. in a very narrow, in specific way, right? Um, but there's a growing appreciation, I think, about more and more people who are through a kind of coming through a kind of a spiritual shot that we are nature, right? And that our bodies are connected so deeply to nature. And people are having these visceral experiences sometimes through their spiritual practice, sometimes through working with psychedelics or plant medicine. Things open up and they're kind of taken out of the, the reality that they'd grown up in where essentially they were eating slabs of animals that were wrapped in cellophane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you can you can be taken to another place just by listening and doing the kinds of things I'm talking about. It will take you to another place. One thing I, I like to do in, you know, in, in, my, um, in my podcast series called Soundwalker, I get people to put on headphones, walk around with a recorder, crank up the volume, make the city noisier and hear all these sounds and then reflect upon it and turn it into like this audio experience. Like instead of complaining about the noise of the city, embrace it and it turns you into this heightened sensitive being where you're hearing all this stuff and it's amazing how instantly it works like so it's uh, other people think a sound walk means something else than this but for me it's like tuning in to the sounds around you and then kind of trying to document it somehow and so if you're playing with birds you know you 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 decide to engage in this encounter and it, it changes how you experience the possibility of the of the the, t- the music around you like you like take it seriously as music like okay it's one thing to be woken by the birds at 5 a.m it's another thing to go out there and say okay i'm going to join in with this and be part of it for a while i'm going to get up super early go out with these birds and join in with them david let's end the the podcast with an excerpt a piece from the album yeah i mean there's so many possibilities one that i like is called sharawaji blues <laughs> which is refers to something that's in the book that was once going to be the title of the book, which is the phrase, the Sharawaji effect. And what is the Sharawaji? Yeah, what does it sound like it's to you? What do you think the, the book called the Sharawaji effect would be about? Uh, I have no idea. What could the Sharawaji be? I don't know. It's like woken up on a gutter, drunk out of your mind, four o'clock in the there morning, you, you don't know where you're at. So the Sharawaji effect is an obscure term from the aesthetics of garden design. <laughs> from like, uh, you know, in Europe, they were really into these gardens in the 1600s, 1700s. And then they mentioned then that, oh, in the Far East, in Asia, in, in Persia, there's there's a word for when everything seems to fit in. You've designed a landscape, a place, everything seems perfect. It's the ultimate aesthetic effect. You've reached the Sharawaji. And so... Uh, the exact opposite of what I thought. Yeah, but no one quite knows <laughs> what it means exactly. And one uh, Canadian uh, kind of sound theorist, Claude Schreier, he said, let's think about the Sharawaji effect in sound. We out there in the world, the environment, you, all the sounds seem perfect. That would be the Sharawaji effect. You, you go to a landscape and, and you hear a soundscape where everything seems to all fit in. So I decided this was this, this place to dream of, to attain, to, to strive towards. So I, I use that word. I talk about it a bit in this book. 
Then we go to this one moment in this track, the Sharawaji Blues. Part of the book, uh, it's not all in Berlin, and part of the CD, half of it is in Helsinki. We have an advantage in Helsinki, it doesn't get dark at night. So if you're making a film of people playing music with nightingales, you have some light. The nightingales, however, are a little bit pissed off by this, because they like to hide in one place in darkness and, and serenade the landscape. But if it's not dark, they know they can be seen, so they move constantly. They kind of dart around while they're singing. They're very agitated. And that's a different experience. The other problem is if you're out there doing it, you never know when to sleep. You're kind of up all the time, day after day after day. Sleep a few hours, wake up. And so this recording was like the last night we were doing this. I was so fed up with the project. It seemed so ridiculous. We couldn't even see this bird. We're trying to film him. And we've been doing it day after day, the same bird. Like, this makes no sense. Music, nightingales, clarinet. And so I, I just was like playing as if like it's pointless. And this is the, my favorite of all the recordings. Like, it was the best moment. Like, really? That's what it sounded like? So at the time, I felt like it was completely ridiculous. But listening back, you hear that. Well, by then, I, I've totally changed how I play the clarinet. Instead of playing notes, I'm, I'm hitting the keys, to imitating the sounds of nightingales. So I, I've changed. I've become like a nightingale musician. I'm not blowing or making notes. I'm make, playing rhythms with keys. like, And it's like, it's just, you know, it's changed me. I've become like half bird in doing this. Something's happened. And then, uh, you know, it's hard to say what kind of music it is. Is it strange? Is it accessible? I, I find this music is uh, quite accessible. Like you start to hear it, it, it lures you in, hopefully. It's not, it's not strange and noisy and off-putting. And this piece, but is like really in between human and bird. And that's why I choose it. As something for you to hear. David, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ken, for inviting me. It's great to have you here. I want to thank David Rothenberg, and thank you, too, for joining us. You can find out more about David at davidrothenberg.net. I also want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 